Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. It is Wheeler Dealer Radio, and we're actually starting a season off happy this week as we talk about Tottenham's impressive 4-1 victory over Southampton. But before I get to that, uh, I want to introduce my co-host for this week. Joining us, coming back to us from his uh, night-long excursion across the wilds of Miami is Brian Ashlock. Brian Every, everything come back with you? You've got ten fingers, ten toes? Uh, ten, ten fingers, nine toes. Um, late night encounter with an alligator. It's not really that important. Well, you uh, know, but yeah. not, only one toe. That's impressive. Only one, yeah. Um, you know, so I, I feel like it was a successful sojourn. Uh, so, yeah, but uh, I'm here to talk about Spurs now. And coming to us from a much less interesting part of the South, it is Ben Daniels. Ben... <laughs> Have, have you lost any limbs since we last talked? No, there's no gators here. We just have deer and rabbits and, and cute critters. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot. Nothing but cute critters in Georgia. And bulldogs. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, we have a pretty fun game to talk about this week. I, I, I think this is the most... I'm probably forgetting something. I, this feels like the most fun Spurs season opener we've had in a hot minute. Maybe because it's not like... Burdened with expectation. Well, I guess it is burdened with expectations. I mean, but... last season we opened the, we opened by beating Man City three 0 Yeah, one well, 0 but that wasn't like fun <laughs> to watch. This was really fun to watch. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I think I think the only place to really begin with this game is uh, you know the 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 best player that has ever played in the Premier League, which is Dejan Kulisevsky. Uh, I, I mean. Ben, I guess we owe you an apology for saying that mate couldn't kick it up to another level last week because, you know, forget Lionel Messi, forget Cristiano Ronaldo, forget Musa Sissoko. It's it's the uh, Dejan Kulishevsky show, right? Right. I mean, we talked about this a while ago, and everyone was just excited to have, like, a guy who compliments Kane and Son. And I remember you and Ryan were extremely skeptical of the idea that he might also be a superstar. And... You know, yeah, that's a lot to put on him after one game, but like he's definitely a superstar, right? There's no question. He's gonna hit the stratosphere. Well, I'll tell you what he is. He's better than Luis Diaz. Oh, yeah, that's a given. I don't know, but what has he won though? So, um, no, I, I think the the Kulisevsky, I think even just on the body of work in what you know the the last five months of, of last season, um. You could tell he was better than you know just a complimentary piece, um, and so I don't know if he ever gets to the Kane and Son level. I mean, certainly he's playing like he has the capability to do that, but like even if he doesn't, he's still like a really good piece of this front three. Like he, we, you look at this front three and you go, all right, well, what's a better attack in the league then? And, I mean... Why are you being such a downer? I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm trying. I'm, I'm being pretty positive, I feel like. I'm just not, like... I, mean, I think Brian is right. three in the league, but he's not a superstar. Get over yourself, Brian. Just saying. He's he's fine. He's really good. He probably will win player of the season. But, you know... Salah does that all the time, and how good is he? Like, he's a fraud. This is, this, is, this is Neymar, Suarez, and Messi levels. This is... You know, Benzema, Ronaldo, and... Hey, what's the last Ronaldo time Neymar, Suarez, or Messi track back? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think what's... It, it's funny, because I think if, if you were having a conversation with, like, non-Spurs fans about the league and said that, like, Kane, Son, Kulishevsky is the best front three in the league, you know, I think they would dismiss you out of hand. Like, I think they would acknowledge it's a good front three... But I, 
I have a hard time arguing against it. I mean, it, I mean, they really are that good, and it, it's it's a really, you know, I, I think it it's funny because you know we were all mad when we lost out on Luis Diaz, but one of the things we talked about at the time is sort of getting Diaz to work in the Spurs team would have required a lot of you know, hammering square pegs in around holes. And, you know, maybe they figure that out. Maybe he's a good enough player to do it. But, I mean, Kulishevsky is just absolutely everything we are missing in our attack. And he just fits in perfectly. And he perfectly complements those guys while also bringing, you know, just all this great passing and finishing to to his game, to, the, to our game. And it's... And God. it turns out he's better than Luis Diaz. Yeah, so exactly. it's not even a matter of fit. It's just he's better. Exactly. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about Kulisevsky's game is that I don't know that I could pick out anything specifically that is, like, an elite skill. Like, you know, with Harry Kane, it's, you know, elite finishing. Uh, With Son, it's, you know, really, really elite, like, pace and also the two-footed finishing. Like, I think Kulisevsky's just really good at a whole bunch of things he's really good at dribbling he's really good like physically he's very strong he has good balance he's a good passer i think his finishing is certainly improving um maybe that's part of spending time with kane and son um so it certainly gives you a lot of hope that he can take some of these skills or one of these skills that is like, you know, B plus A minus, and turn it into an A plus level skill. I think the thing for me that reads as elite with Kulishevsky is, I hate to do it because it's a very intangible kind of thing, but like his decision making and composure seem to be what elevates everything else that he has. You know, he has a lot, like you said, he has a lot of skills in his locker, but he always seems to make right decisions when he's presented with them you know like yes he's not always going to be the man he's not always going to hit that strike he's not always going to make the pass perfectly but he's always like picking the right option like nine times out of ten and that is just goes such a long way when you have so many things in your locker you know he can beat a man inside beat a man outside come inside and take the shot like he did you know for our, our last goal um you know, he can play a gorgeous cross to Sessignan at the back post. Like he can do everything, and he's always just so heads up and so calm with the ball at his feet that he just does the right thing. Well, I was going to say ben, something similar, Ben. I think it's his vision that really is. I mean, he, I think he reads the game so well, and it reminds me. I mean, I don't think he's the same type of player, but it reminds me a lot of Kane when he was first breaking out in terms of he just read the game so well and he sort of, you know, I mean Kane was a especially back then much more of a pure striker but he just understood what needed to happen at any given moment. Even back then he understood when to lay it off, when to take it, when to dribble, you know, how to get around his man, what was needed and I mean that's what really strikes me about Kulishevsky is he just, he's, his ability to know what to do and when and yeah he doesn't have, you know um, groundbreaking speed or, speed or He's, I mean, he's strong, but it's not like we're talking about a Dama Traore or anything. And, you know, he's got a good shot on him, but he's not a Son or a Kane. But he understands how to place passes. He understands how to place shots. And he's just so good at controlling everything. And what I think is really interesting about that to me is uh, that's not what I would have expected to a guy who came to Spurs with, but I'm going to assume his confidence issues, given what had happened to him at Juventus. You know, this is a guy I thought would have, you know, maybe taking a little bit of time to find his feet at Spurs. And I don't know, maybe it's just a testament to how good a coach Conte is, or maybe it's a testament to how bad a coach Allegri is. But, you know, he sort of came into Spurs and just instantly clicked. And, I mean, yes, you're playing alongside, you know, two elite forwards who are going to do the work. That probably helps. But then he compliments them so well, I think, is a testament to his vision on the field. Well, and I, I, there, was a, there was a nice article about... Kulishevsky in The Athletic this week that basically talked about, you know, the training at Juventus under Allegri was not kind of as intense as Kulishevsky would have wanted. And he was used to, you know, more more intense training that he received while he was on loan at Atalanta or while he was at Parma. And so coming to Spurs and coming to into Antonio Conte's regime and, and what he expects from the players... Um, was kind of a huge help to 
him and and how he likes to play and how he likes to feel. And then, you know, he gives that interview in the offseason. I think it was this offseason where he talks about, you know, he, he enjoys the suffering. He, he you know, he, he wants to, like, walk out of training and be very sore and feel like he's exhausted. Like, he wants that. And he could not be in a better place if that's what he wants. And so, like, you know, like, him just continuing to play and grow in Conte's system, I think, is is going to be a huge help to him. Um, I think, you know, ab- above all else with him, for Conte, he is a perfect fit in this role. Like, if we had another manager, I don't know how this would work, but, you know, just because this is the way Conte plays, this is the way Conte trains the team, this is what he expects out of someone playing in that role. It, Kulisevsky just gets it. And, and, le- and like Ben says, he and, and you said, Greg, like he understands the patterns. He understands, you know, where the players are going to be, where the passes are going to go. And, and I don't know if that's vision. I don't know if that's decision making. I don't know if that's just because he's really studious and he pays attention and he watches film and he like knows the patterns as well as Conte you know, wants any player to know the patterns and, and he's just really good at executing them. Whatever it is, it's working. I think the other thing is, is what we've seen from him so far on and off a pitch is like, he seems to exude like a superstar level of confidence, you know, in all of those like South Korean interviews. And, you know, when he's like walking through, uh, there's a video where he was like walking through um, a, a shot that he missed. And like at the end of the season and, and, and then setting up Sun for his, like, golden boot-winning um, goal, you know, he just, like, had a presence that was very compelling and very, like, sure of himself um, in, in a social situation. And it doesn't necessarily translate to the pitch, but I think what we're seeing is, you know, you say it's easy to play with guys as good as Kane and Sun, but I think it's just as easy to have two superstars like that and, like, kind of hide a little bit and, you know play play beneath them and like facilitate them and you know sort of subsume yourself and like into a backseat role and he hasn't done that at all like he is he is there for it and you know i think that just level of like confidence and swagger coupled with everything else he has going for him seems to be like the makings of a kind of guy who could be a superstar you know when our attack was i don't want to say it was broken because i think the way Son and Kane played even in that last Mourinho year was still really impressive. But when it felt like there was something missing out of our attack to really knit the midfield and attack together, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, I always thought we needed that sort of number 10 who could kind of replace, you know, what Erickson used to do on the team. And I always thought that was something we were missing in the middle of the pitch, which is the whole reason we got a guy like Lacelso in here. And I think what's kind of surprised me about Kulishevsky. I think Kulishevsky does all those things in a lot of ways that Erickson used to do, but he does them from sort of the forward right section of the pitch. And that's something that, you know, I think Pochino would sparingly do with Erickson, was sort of stick him out on the right. And it wasn't something he did all the time, and it wasn't something I think he was altogether successful at. And it's certainly something that multiple coaches experimented with, with Celso, and it never quite worked there, even though I think it was successful at Betis, certainly for a while. And I'm just surprised to see, you know, he does all these things of, like, you know, just connecting all these players. Just he's able to do all that and provide an attacking threat himself is so, so useful and so impressive. Because I think something that I know we've talked about this on here and more skeptical pundits have talked about when they're referring to Spurs is, you know, okay, well, if Son and Kane are having an off day, where are the goals coming from? And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the Southampton game was, like, you know, where, what Conte wants to see happen, where they come from. They came from fullbacks and, you know, Kulishevsky. Like, I mean, we're producing goals from other areas of the pitch. And that's overlooking the fact that Son and Kane should have had, like, three goals between them, even though they weren't playing all that well in this match. Yeah, I mean, I think to zoom out to the like game itself, the fact that we were able to hang four goals on a team without any contribution from Kane and Son is very, very different from the version of Spurs we've seen in the last couple of years, which is the Kane and Sun team and being able to be much more dynamic and much less predictable um, and having goals come from other areas of the pitch is just going to make us such a more dangerous team. Well, I, before we get too far into this, I do 
want to add one more thing to the Kulishevsky stuff as we transition into this. That cross for the first Sessegnon goal was ridiculous. Everything about that goal was ridiculous. But that was that was a insane cross. Like the way that he was able to pick Sessegnon out from that position on the pitch with a cross that driven was just wildly impressive. And I don't think we saw him do. We saw some nice crosses from him last year, not like that. Uh, but yes, like that's the kind of thing that we want to see him. It's like fullbacks getting into scoring positions abusing other fullbacks who used to play for Tottenham Hotspur and scoring really impressive goals. It, it's it's really, I think, you know, I do think we saw a little bit more of what Conte wants out of this team this week. I really hope that, like, Chelsea sign Kyle Walker-Peters in the next couple days. And then he and then he starts for them against us. And Sassanian gets to do that to him again. That was That's such a, a real goal. rumor, is it? That was such a mean. No, it isn't. But that was such a mean no, they're, header. They're, they've like, been linked with him. They're like, oh, well, they're looking at uh, English right backs or left, whatever position he plays. Who knows? God, just like I, I don't know. I, I feel like you don't see headers like that too often, where he just knocks a guy over and heads it without leaving the ground. <laughs> yeah, he was just a bulldozer. Everything in his way ended up in the back of the net, including Kyle Walker Peters. <laughs> <laughs> so Sessegnon, let's talk about Sessegnon a little bit. Uh, I think that was a really good performance out of him, and I am a little—I guess I shouldn't be—but given how mediocre he's been, and that's probably being generous. In his first—I don't think I think that's unfair. In his first two years at Spurs. I thought last season Sessegnon came on like okay. very strongly. I mean, before that season, I'm a little surprised that Sessegnon ended up winning the regular on Sessegnon battle. Like, uh, it's a, it's a little surprising yeah. that Conte's still I, here with him. Is what I'm saying. I think that honestly speaks more to what a disappointment Regulon has been as much as anything. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, when we signed Sessegnon, I think there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical. But like a guy who did what he did as young as he did in the championship was always worth dreaming on. Maybe not for the price we paid for him, you know, but he's got a lot of tools, um, and he seems to be starting to put them together into a into a role that makes sense. And I think the other thing is having a, a manager who plays wingbacks definitely solves the kind of tweener problem that he was having where, you know, he played a lot of left back and he wasn't a very good left back and he played a lot of left forward, but he wasn't, like, really fast enough or technical enough to play that role sticking him as a wing back kind of solves both those problems and allows him to just focus on the things he's good at and credit to him he's doing it no I think he is doing it I don't want to I don't mean to say this is a dig at Sessignon it's what's surprising to me about is given Conte's like history of asking for other players it's a little of sort of demanding transfers I'm a little surprised he's stuck he's stuck it out with Sessignon he's dealt with a lot of injuries was kind of rocky at first was behind a more heralded left back. Like I'm glad he has. It's just I'm a little surprised we're where we are today, considering I mean, where we, we were. Did buy, s- we did buy Perisic. Like yes, but we didn't buy him to replace Sessegnon. <laughs> I mean no, but we. I mean Sessegnon is probably our backup left wing back, not our starter. And if this is what our backup is going to give us, we're in pretty good shape. But you know, we definitely bought over him. But I think Perisic isn't here for a long time. You're right, Conte clearly sees something in Sessegnon and, like, having Perisic in front of him to learn from. I mean, he even said, you know, talking about that header, is that Perisic, you know, gave him advice and told him in in warm-ups, hey, Kyle Walker-Peters is smaller than you. You should get really physical with him and run him (laughs) over like a cement mixer. That was... Cause am I the only one who found that a little strange? Like, like like, I'm glad that Perisic... I'm very happy that Perisic is being a mentor, but... I would hope that Sessegnon can look at Kyle Walker-Peters and be like, I'm going to fucking run that dude over for 90 minutes today. And if we get if we contest the header, I'm going to put him in the ground. I mean, I think that's just kind of like the elite-level athlete perspective given <laughs> to just, just like, you know, a guy that's pretty good. Where if you're Perisic, you're like, that guy? Fuck him. I'm better than him. I'm bigger than him, stronger than him, more technical. I'm going to run him off the park or run him over or whatever the case may be. And and if he imparts a little bit of that onto Sessegnon where he's like, bro, you're better than him. Go 
put him in the dirt. <laughs> you go, okay, sure. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. It just struck me as funny that it's like you need someone to tell you this. Right. It was also <laughs> aggressively disrespectful. To it, Kyle it really. Someone it really who was. is presumably. Ryan Sessegnon's like acquaintance at the very least. I think like, they're friends. They, like, they've very, they've almost certainly played together on the England youth teams. They they definitely at the very least know each other. Well, it's like, bad enough that he's doing like the principal Skinner pathetic meme to him on the pitch, but then he has to like, like throw him on the bus as soon as the match is over. Yeah. Just absolutely abusing it's him. Like, being like, yeah, they told me to because he's not that big. Hey, Kyle, oh, yeah, uh, our new soft. transfer, the Croatian guy, told me to take your soul and eat it. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, like, I think the other thing with Sessegnon was, for him specifically, was overcoming kind of expectations and what we thought he should be. Because I, I think at Fulham pre-injury he was a little bit more explosive of a player. And like Greg talked about, he was kind of this tweener. He played a little bit of left, uh, a left winger, that sort of thing. And so he really struggled to find the fit here. And, and now with Conte playing with the wing back, he's utilized his attacking skills that don't rely primarily on pace. And I think that's, for a long time, that's still what a lot of Spurs fans expected out of him was explosive pace, um, you know, the the sort of just like running that Regulon does. Um, but his game is, I think we've, it's been described in our writer's room as kind of like an old man game where, you know, he's he's very strong. He's very he reads the game well. He he he's better coming uh, in and linking play than like getting outside on the overlap and while he's capable of doing that like that's just not he doesn't have like pace to burn in the same way that you know like Regulon does and now that he's not really expected to do that it, it works out really well for him I think at least for the fans some of that's I think like Danny Rose and Kyle Walker kind of broke our brains a little bit and I certainly am like we're going to have a fullback. They better be a track star, you know. And, you know, I think Regulon de- demonstrates, you know, again, I think Regulon is sort of ill-suited to the particular system Conte wants to run. But, you know, Regulon sort of demonstrates the limits of that and sort of how good Kyle Walker and Danny Rose were at other things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we have two fullbacks. I mean, we have several fullbacks now who aren't track stars. I guess we have one, Spence, who kind of is. But... Uh, I think I think the, our other fullback deserves a little bit of credit for his performance because he has gotten a lot of grief uh, from Spurs fans. I thought Royale was really good um, in this game. I mean, maybe I'm grading him on a curve. Certainly wasn't a problem. And, you know, I think with some of the things Conte wants to do, I think having Kulishevsky in front of him forgives a lot. Like, it's a lot easier to be like, just give it to, give it to Dejan if you need to, you know. He I mean, do certain he, things up the pitch, but I thought he was good. I thought I thought he played well, and I think, you know, I think there's sort of there's clearly a willingness to work with Royale that Conte respects in a way that he does not respect uh, Sergio Regula. I mean, you know, that assist that he had for Kulisevsky's last goal. I mean, that's a super difficult like ten foot pass. Um, <laughs> it's the you know the Tom Carroll type assist. Um, Still did it. it. Still did it. Still did it. And, yeah. you know... Kulishevsky was screaming at him for that <laughs> ball. And, uh, you know, look, he... I don't know why he was where he was for the own goal. Um, I Like, I watched, you know, the build-up to that, and I, I still can't figure out why that's where his run ended up. That can't be where he's supposed to be. <laughs> it's the <laughs> but, patterns, man, the patterns. Yeah. But look, it worked out, and he, I mean, he almost scored a goal. Like, I, I mean, that's that's one of the worst own goals I've ever seen in my entire life. But um, You're a Spurs fan. That's not true. No, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, that's, it, he, this, he had so much time to do literally anything else. And I don't even think he needed to touch it, because I'm not sure it was going to go in. No, it was getting to that ball. <laughs> like... There was, like, 
good for Real. He got on the end of it and he put it towards goal. Um, but that definitely wasn't going to go in if Salisi. Hey man, you just... put it, you put it on target. Something happens. Yeah, I mean, hey. Um, but look, you missed all the shots that the opposition defender doesn't take. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I just, I, I'm like Greg. I, I think Royale gets a lot more stick than he probably should. I thought he was fine. Um, I don't know that Doherty or Spence are like miles better than him. That it warrant that that like. There's going to be so much competition at right wing back. I just don't know where we're going to wind up. Like, that's still a position I think we could obviously improve, but it doesn't seem like a position where we're going to make another signing and then have four right wing backs. I hope so. I hope right. we really do. I, mean, I think you know the reality here is I think Doherty has much better final third instincts than Royal does. He's just better in the box. You know, he's better around the box, um, but he's also not <laughs> not an athlete. And Royale is a pretty good defender. Um, and with Kulishevsky in front of him, you know, and and Perisic or Sessegnon playing that very attacking version of a wing back, you know, I think it can make sense for Royale to be a little more conservative and a little more of like a support player whose job is just to not get beat and keep the ball moving. Um, that might be how it shakes out. I think it's possible we go with Sesson, or Perisic and Doherty and just have two guys who are you know, getting on the end of back post crosses all day. Um, I mean, you know, maybe we end up with Sessegnon and Paris and shifts to the right. Like, there's a lot of options here, but I think Royale certainly gives us something um, that's maybe balances the team in a different way that might be useful. Um, you know, I mean, I think he got turned inside out and upside down for Southampton's goal, um, but it was still, like, didn't – him getting beat that badly didn't – create such a good chance that like I want to crucify him for it like it was a pretty fluky goal that happened so well I also think the benefit of him being a more defensive or conservative right wing back is that Romero is an absolutely insane person and so you know if it if him being more conservative allows Romero more license to move forward carry the ball or pop up around the 18 yard box I'm fine with that well, and the fact of the matter is, if there's any position that Conte's system just physically punishes more than anything else, it's his fullbacks. And, you know, I don't think having a lot of good to... I think having some good Premier League fullbacks is not a bad thing, especially in this crazy season. And if we end up with him and Spence and Doherty, especially given how Spence is going to have to adapt to the Premier League level, you know, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. To have them around, no. especially if he's like he's clearly a good clubhouse vibes guy. I don't know if you guys have seen the the video of him at the uh, him on percussion at the Brazilian music festival with Richarlson and and Lucas, but you know clearly a good vibes guy. So samba party baby. No, I mean, you know, I think it's telling that both fullbacks got subbed off during the course of the match. I mean, I think we all came out pretty late, but. Sessegnon got subbed off in, like, the 60th minute, so... Right, like, we have five subs, and if we're putting a lot of miles on our wingback's legs, like, having five guys to be able to refresh throughout a match um, is definitely going to be helpful, you know, keeping up intensity and keeping everybody fresh for a long season. Um, Plus, you know, the Britain's of Champions League and other cups and whatever. So it's not a bad problem to have. We end up keeping all these guys... You know, we probably need to move on Regulon just to get some bodies off the roster. But well, I mean, Regulon's clearly like, you know, <laughs> yeah, we just haven't heard a lot about where he's going. So yeah, yeah, we're just waiting, yeah. wait, waiting for Sevilla to find enough money in the cushions. But uh, which, good luck with that. But um, yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. Um, I think. Can talk about the game as a whole. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I I was really struck by in the game like. I don't know how you guys felt, because it, it seemed to have that classic, like, oh, Spursy start, where Southampton kind of, I felt, scored a goal against the run of play. But, you know, this is, honestly, I'm a little surprised, because I saw some people melting down, or it's not everyone, but some people, about how Spurs didn't have, like, the best opening, what was that, 15 minutes or so, until the Southampton goal. I mean, it, I think it was fine. But this is the team, I think we saw, even like during the back half of last year, when we were just like kicking everyone's ass and scoring like more goals in the city. I mean, this is a team that took its time to sort of feel its way into a game. 
And I think there's a big portion of this, and I think it's because we're so good in transition and in counterattacks that, um, you know, I think this team generally takes about 10, 15, 20 minutes, even against the bad team, to, like, really get comfortable and take over a game. And it's something I remember, like, you know, even Pochino's very good teams. Like, they would kind of scuffle for the first, like, you know, 20, 25 minutes, and then they would just sort of turn it on and start whipping the other team's ass. And I think this game very much followed that pattern. And, you know, I mean, I don't think Southampton was ever really in the ascendancy. But, you know, I guess there was that time where we weren't good enough that you were worried it might get away from us. But we really took control as soon as Southampton scored that goal. I guess I think the thing that I'd say is, you know, you, you spoke about our, like, elite transition ability. I feel like most of this game was played very effectively in a more possession-oriented uh, style of football from Spurs, you know, we weren't, we didn't score a single goal from like a cane long pass over the top to Sun running in behind. Pretty much everything was from patient, structured play and breaking a team down. And, you know, that's a thing that we've not historically been good at um, in recent years, especially, you know, the way Conte has played and the way Kane and Sun have linked up. Um, but like, we, we're able to maintain like constant pressure around Southampton's box and not just beat our heads against the wall and cross to nobody and, you know, take pot shots into defenders legs. Like we were getting balls into dangerous areas and creating real opportunities in a way that I think is a very new dimension um, for the Spurs side. And that as much as anything has me really excited about what we might be capable of this well, season. And I think what's what's interesting about that, or what's, what's encouraging about that, even though I think it comes with a caveat that Southampton is probably a very bad team and probably going to be at least flirting with relegation for at least some of the year, Southampton's a team that found ways to frustrate us last year. I mean, they were very good at pressing us into problems, and some of that was earlier in the season, but they were, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, one of the sort of speed bumps we hit when we sort of ceded control of top four back to Arsenal. We weren't able to break them down. Um, and that's not even talking about the game where they sort of, that, that crazy, what was it, 3-2 match where they pressed the shit out of us. Like, I mean, this is a team that had our numbers to some extent last year. And, you know, they really didn't know. They were very unimpressive against us. And I think we had a lot to do with that. And I think you're right, Ben. That's really encouraging sort of, at least in terms of like how we're going to handle these teams that want to pack it in and you know not let us play, we really did a. I think you're right. We did a decent job of picking them off. I think fullback play had a lot to do with that, which is why I wanted to focus on Cessignon and, Ro- and Royale. But um, yeah, it, it was it was a really good performance from Spurs. I, I would say that the one thing that I was kind of underwhelmed by was our midfield play. Um, I thought. Uh, Hoiberg has a good pass to uh, in the build-up to uh, the Kulisevsky goal. Um, but other than that, him and Bentoncourt were fine. Um, and, and I think... I guess that's my biggest question for the season is what level of performance do we get out of those midfielders? I think everybody... I think we've talked about it before is they're all kind of samey players. They're all pretty good individually. Um, But are any of them capable of, you know, taking over a game of, you know, absolutely just like shutting down an opponent's midfield or, you know, who, who of this group of four um, that we have, is going to kind of rise to the level that you really need to have a title challenge. And I don't know that we saw that out of the the midfield we started with. I think you're kind of underselling the performance of our midfield, honestly. Like, you're right that nobody, like, pulled the strings in the way that, like, we've seen, like, a Dembele or a Modric do that, like, just runs a game out of midfield. But, like, Conte doesn't really ask his midfielders to do that. And generally speaking, I thought they were a pretty strong wall in front of the back line. They did not 
allow Southampton opportunities to counter up the middle with any frequency. Um, you know, like Greg said, when we played them last year, they pressed us into oblivion. And I mean, neither of them seemed to have any trouble, you know, cycling the ball up the pitch under pressure. Um, you know, even though I think the press was way, way, way dialed back from what we saw last year, but I mean, they seemed to just, tidily move the ball along and allow us to keep the ball in Southampton's half. And, you know, they picked up loose balls all over the pitch. They, you know, won challenges. I think, I think the midfield is going to feel unimpressive because they're asked to do a pretty unimpressive looking job. But I think without those guys just sort of cleaning up and keeping the ball going, you know, we're not able to maintain the level of, of pressure that we have. It's going to be, a different story, I think, when we play a more aggressive team and a team where we actually need them to break lines with passing or, you know, resist heavy amounts of, of pressing from a front line, um, you know, to see how we can distribute the ball at the pitch. But, I mean, for what what this game asked of them, I feel like they did fine. And, like, that one hoid year pass to split the defense to Royale for Kulishevsky's goal was was great. That was, like you know, real creative midfielder shit. I think, like, after all those years of winks and, you know, just winks, <laughs> but after all those years of these sort of subpar midfielders, I think there is something very encouraging about just like, oh, no, they got it. I don't, I'm not hearing their names. Like, you know, it's kind of like cornerbacks in American football. It's like, the less I hear your name on the broadcast, the better. And... Especially against those, like they're there to like control it, make Tom Carroll passes out to other players, and they're the ones who are going to funnel it and do fun stuff. Um, I think you're right, Ben. When we play better teams, those, they're going to there's going to be more asked of them, and they're going to have to do more. But certainly against teams like this, a lot of what they're there for is just shutting things down. And I think you know something I really like about this team, and I think I'll feel this way about Basuma, and I think I'll feel this way about Skip when he comes back. Uh, maybe to a lesser extent, just because Skip is so young, but, like, what I really like about this mid... I mean, the thing I like most about this midfield is, like, when they've got the ball, or they're in a one-on-one situation, I'm not terrified. Like, it's like, they're all very controlled players who are all pretty good on the ball, and are not... Like, I generally trust them not to do something stupid. Like, and Bentoncourt in particular is, like, just, like, steady Eddie, you know? It's just, like, you just feel good when he's got... Nothing bad's gonna happen, like... And I know there's exceptions to every rule, but, like, it's just so encouraging after all these sort of misfit toys we've had in midfield over the last couple years. After how many years of Sissoko winks? You know, it's just, like, they're not gonna do something stupid. Like, yeah, they're not Luka Modric. Yeah, they're not Musa Dembele. But, like, you know, it's just solid meat and potatoes, like, progressing the ball up the pitch, making things happen. And they do. Like, we know these guys have impressed... Like you said about the Hoybeard pass, we've We've seen, uh, like, Bentoncourt do some really good stuff. Like, they're just such solid, reliable players. And I know that sounds boring, but just after so much of the garbage we have dealt with, really since, like, post Lucid Dembele's peak, it's just, you know, it's it's nice to watch midfielders you trust again. And I don't feel like we have any midfielders right now where I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, what's he doing? I mean, I guess we have Harry Wing still, but you know what I mean. Like, our, our sort of four midfielders that we're going to be using hopefully for most of the year are just, you know, you just feel good. You don't feel bad when they've got the ball. You feel good. Like that they're going to do something productive with it. Yeah. I mean, I think all Conde is really looking for is like guys who won't cause us a problem. Guys who won't be a liability. You can just stick them there. You don't have to worry about them. Like, yes, they're not doing the phenomenal, you know, they're not, they're not doing the Tangi and Dombele shit that like makes you sit up and go, wow. And then also, you know, misplacing a five yard pass that leads to a counterattack. Um, you know, it's like you said, steady Eddie. And I think, I think we've got that. And I think Ben Corn in particular, I thought had a very strong game and was very, very mobile and, and robust and comfortable. I, I mean, I know why Juventus got rid of him, but like, Jesus, like I'm, I'm still amazed. Like at least Kulishevsky as well as working. Like, I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Get rid of get rid of Benton Like he's so good. I mean, I feel like he's a perfect Serie A midfielder too. So like, I'm not sure what he's doing here, but I'm glad Juventus needed to buy a striker from Fiorentina again. So, like, I'm just looking some like real fucking shitty, shitty n- numbers, but whatever. 
but 90% passing, five out of seven long balls, four out of five tackles, 10 recoveries, seven to nine ground duels won. Like, it just wasn't a problem in, in the best way and did enough work to keep keep the pressure on. And it's interesting because we have, like, I mean, we talked about this when we talked about our transfer window. We have kind of the four of the same guys. And in a lot of teams, that's kind of a problem, but not a constant team. Right. You know, that's been a real struggle for me personally because I like a midfielder with a lot of pizzazz. I want a guy to make you, like, sit up and take notice. Oh, and, my, like, my... The kind of guys that are, like, hard to pay attention to. You, you can go ten minutes of his first match and be like, What's what's Toybeer doing? What's Ben Carter doing? I I really forgot about them, and like I think that's really what Conte wants. It's just guys you forget about. I mean, yeah, my introduction to midfielders when I became a soccer fan was Luka Modric, so it's like, you know, like that's kind of been my ideal midfielder in my head. And it's just like this meat and potatoes stuff is a little bit against what I want, but you know, you watch enough Winks Soko, you sort of learn to appreciate, you know, this level of play. Right. And I think it's worth stressing. It's like meat and potatoes. It's like, it's, it's fine. It's not, it's not Manchester United who are just playing a couple potatoes out there, you know, with like Scott McTominay and Fred who fucking can't do anything well. Some and rancid meat. And they're getting brutalized. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> My boy. You're right. That's not fair. We're talking, we're not talking about forwards. Um, and Erickson is a Spurs legend. And you know what? You know what? I, I'm, I'm glad that I felt bad for him. I wanted him to come back to Spurs. I'm glad we're getting back to petty hours with Christian Erickson. Now he chose to chase that money at Manchester United. Couldn't see where that was all going. He just wanted to play for the man who brought him back to life. But I guess that kind of sentimentality has no place in your heart, Craig. No, he just wanted to go play for the Theater of Dreams, where the dream is apparently the Conference League. Man, do not ever cross Greg. He does not forgive. <laughs> I was ready to forgive, and then he went to Manchester United, so fuck that guy. I'll forgive him again when he retires. <laughs> yeah, it's up. Uh, but this guy, I mean, moving off of that, which was awkward. Um, I mean, we were just, I was just amazed how just easy this all felt. And I guess, like, we talked a little bit about this before we were recording, but, like, the preseason didn't feel bad, but it was very, like, well, this looks good, but we're not scoring goals, and is that something to be concerned with? And I think a lot of that came from the fact that, like, Arsenal was putting, like, nine past everyone. And now they're, like, even with Jesus being, like, pretty good, as low as I am to admit it, like, Arsenal's back to their, like, we're going to look great for 30 minutes and, like, struggle for the rest of the match in their first game, and we're just beating the brakes off of someone, and it's... It's sort of nice to see, like, to be reminded that you shouldn't put too much stock in preseason. Yeah, I mean, it's just an exercise to get people fit and try some shit out. And, you know, I I think we talk about this every year on the podcast, but the preseason that will always loom largest in my memory is the preseason where we signed Darren Bent and Giovanni Dos Santos and David Bentley and we just ran riot all summer and capped it off by beating Roma 5-0. And then old Wande uh, started the season with two points from eight games. And, you know, I think that was a very good lesson in not putting any faith in anything from preseason because it doesn't mean fucking anything. These are not real games. Yeah, I mean, you know... It's it's nice to have kind of an early, easy start with a, like a, a Southampton-level team. I think the interesting thing and, and the better gauge is going to come this weekend when we play Chelsea. And I know, I'm sure we're going to get into it here quickly, but like Chelsea looked pretty bad that first weekend. But they are still, talent-wise, a very good team. Um, and they have a very good defense, and they still have a very good midfield, and they have a very good coach. And, you know, I, this will be a, a bigger test than anything we've done so far. Yeah, and I mean, Chelsea is the one team, you know, that we really struggled with. You know, they beat us like three times in a row, um, like last January and February, and 
in the league in cup competitions. You know, we were able to turn over City and play Liverpool really comfortably and beat Arsenal and whatever. But like Chelsea is the team that has had our number. So we did play them at sort of like the nadir of the of the Conte era. I mean, we never. It wasn't like those losses came in the middle of like good runs of form, but yes, like you could, you could, someone could walk around and shoot every player under contract at Chelsea in the knee, and I still wouldn't feel great about that game. The thing I'm hanging my hat on is narrative. Is uh, Ben, what are you doing? All right, so here's my story. So if you remember back to last January the pinnacle of like emo Conte melting down in the press every week and everyone freaking out about how he's going to leave us. And, you know, this team isn't right for him and we're not matching his ambitions and everything's terrible. And we were having that conversation every week. Uh, we lost to Southampton, Chelsea and Wolves all in a row, not necessarily in that order, but we opened our season against Southampton, Chelsea and Wolves. And I feel like this is our, season opening revenge tour to set settle all grievances and we will come back and beat all three of these teams that gave us such a fucking headache um and almost you know derailed the whole Conte project and that's our that's our statement of intent for the whole season for settling our grievances with Chelsea I don't know how I about how I feel about the team getting on a plane after we beat Chelsea flying to Madrid and like crippling Eden Hazard, you know, with, with lead pipes, but sure, why not? I mean, I don't know. I, Chelsea, I feel like there's so much psychic trauma wrapped up in this fixture for me. Like, they just, I know we, we, like, I've seen us have really impressive wins over Chelsea, and I guess this isn't, like, a crucial match, but God, it feels like Chelsea always pulls it out against us when it really matters. I mean, you know, thinking about Chelsea matches historically, like, the... 5-3 against Chelsea under Pochettino where Kane whipped their ass. You know, when we do beat Chelsea, it feels like a real statement of intent and a real, like, era-defining kind of performance. And, you know, we had to beat them to win our last trophy. There's been so many Chelsea games in my memory that, like, we've lost, but the ones we win feel significant. And so I'll... I am hanging a lot of my emotional well-being on like getting a significant win over Chelsea next week. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be nice to start the season, you know, with two big wins and, you know, points against another top four rival and probably our, our most direct rival for, you know, the, the top three, um, you know, helps that they're uh, kind of in flux right now, and we seem to be pretty settled. Someone on Twitter... The vibes are bad. The vibes are bad. Someone on Twitter made a joke, and I can't remember who it is, so I apologize if you happen to listen to this podcast, made a joke about how, like, oh, Spurs needs a... Spurs want a challenge for the title. They need to improve their performance against top-tier teams. And really, that just means we need to start beating Chelsea. I mean, we kind of have the rest of it down. Like... We always give Liverpool problems. We, or at least we, we give Liverpool problems often enough that you feel good about it. We always give City problems. You know, like we could, like United isn't really a thing. Arsenal's never felt threatening. Like, you know, like we just need to figure out a way to beat Chelsea with some regularity. I'm gonna, rem- I'm gonna remind you of that little soundbite when we play the first North London derby. About I'm gonna feel Arsenal good about it. My point is, we have enough like good wins against Arsenal that I don't feel like that's beyond us. Like. I just feel like like good wins against Chelsea. I, I mean, I've seen a bunch of them, like you said, Ben, but they feel very few and far between. Like it's not like the Arsenal where we didn't beat them for like eight years or whatever the hell it was, but it's still like they seem to have our number in the way that we seem to have Chelsea or City's number. Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked about it on the pod before. I I feel you know like we have a much more robust rivalry with Chelsea in recent years than Arsenal, just in terms of that the fixtures have meant something so frequently. Um, and, and obviously that's recency bias, um, but it's just like these matches have been so important to where our season goes or where our season ends up that, that it's hard not to 
place a lot of value on this early season match, even though we've got 36 games after it. And in the grand scheme of things, it probably won't matter what one way or the other what the result is. But um, for the vibes, it would be very nice to get an emphatic win. Yeah, and also doesn't help that Arsenal have been like irrelevant for like eight years. So <laughs> yeah. we're actual rivals of Chelsea. I don't know. I gotta say, like, I, I think last year I would have been prepared for the take of like the North London Derby's lost some of his luster, but like, I don't think I've had a better week watching soccer than I did like the week we beat them and then they dropped the ball against Newcastle. Like, I haven't had that much fun watching soccer probably since we beat Ajax. Um, you know, that was that was a real good time. It's a good week. <laughs> Was it was a very good week. That was a great week. Uh, that did a lot to repair the sort of psychic trauma of, like, firing Pochito and hiring Mourinho. Um, so, yeah, just, like, just to get, like, a temperature check. How, how I feel like there's a lot of, like, you know, now that it's, Spurs are going to keep Conte, and we played really well over the last, over the back half of the season, and I think, like, so far, as of right now, in the, in the calendar year of 2022, we have scored more goals than any other team in the Premier League in the Premier League. I feel like there's this sort of like everyone's thinking can Spurs challenge for the title, but no one quite wants to commit to it. I mean, because, you know, obviously, like, city or city, and, you know, we, we saw a little glimpse of what Holland could be for them this weekend, and you know, Liverpool aren't going to play on dry grass every week. So, uh, you know, I mean, what, what's your feeling about the Spurs team? Because I feel like the, the title challenge thing is sort of like, I feel like it's all in the back of our minds, but I don't know. I, I like On the one hand, I want to dismiss it. On the other hand, I think we're really fucking good. <laughs> but it's only so one I, game in, and we played a bad team, so I, I'm probably getting a little bit carried away. So I, I had a conversation with the... Uh someone on Twitter this week, um, Nathan, uh, on Twitter this week about, like, what we would need to, like, win the title. And we were talking about, you know, how many goals we need to score. And you, you need, like, 90-something goals over the course of a season historically to, to win a title. And we were just trying to figure out where all 90 of those are going to come from. And, and like... When we broke it down, it seemed insane because we needed like, you know, a dozen goals from the wing backs and like 10 goals from the midfielders and then 20 from some combination of Lucas, Kulisevsky and Richarlison and and, you know, 40 from Kane and Son. And, you know, when you break it down, that feels insane. Um, but watching this team play, I'm like, we could score 93 goals. That doesn't seem that that like that many um so i think that's where i am i think logically i'm just like i i i'm confident that liverpool and city are on a level above us um just watching city play with holland was like a little bit terrifying um so that's where i'm at logically but my heart is very much like we can do this like we're we're right there like we just need a few things to go our way and we, we were in with a shot. <laughs> That's a lot of goals. I, I was just looking the 16-17 season that we should have won when we lost to Conte. We scored 86 to their 85. So, yeah, I, I'm fine. That's fine. We can do that again. Yeah, it's just it just it's a lot of goals, and or I mean we'd also need a really going to score forty, and Kulishevsky's going to score forty. So as long as Sun chips in with ten goals, I think we're fine. Yeah, I mean if the front three combined score ninety, then it'll be easy. We were, we've already got three from other people. I mean the other option that we could have is is just we get a ton of own goals. Um, if we got like ten goals from own goals, we'd be we'd be set. I feel good about that. Oh, I'm looking. Greg's oh, muted. Shit. I want I want to point out Greg is muted. I mean, just I don't know. It's it's. I think that's just the interesting thing. I think so much of this team's forge. I think any kind of real title challenge, if that's what we're going to 
talk about. Like, so much of that just relies on City and Liverpool both having rough years. And if it was just City, I could maybe talk myself into it. But both of them, you know, Liverpool isn't going to play on dry grass every week. So, um, you know, both of them having rough years is hard. But, like, I think any, any chance Spurs have of that is going to be really reliant on Kulishevsky just being as good as we think he can be, um, you know, and really just upping the level of this team. And I don't know. I mean, I think we're going to be a strong team this year. I think we can challenge for stuff. I think, frankly, the thing that everyone's overlooking is Spurs are going to be, with all this depth, are going to be a really strong contender for some silverware this year. And, you know, if we just have, like, if we win an FA Cup and finish third, that's a really good season. That's a really good season. For Spurs, or if we make, you know, God, God forbid, we make a deep run in the Champions League, and especially with the World Cup, this this winter going on, like who knows what could happen? You know, who knows if Conte, what will happen if Conte just starts selling out on the league every week and focusing on the Champions League? Like he hasn't done it before, but that doesn't mean he can't do it now. So, yeah, I don't know. I I just. We've been saying for so long that, you know, like top four in a trophy is like makes it a success. And it's not untrue. Like any trophy this season would would make this season a, a success. But when you have Conte and you make some of the signings that we've made in the last couple seasons, you're kind of selling out to win something. And that something isn't just a league cup, you know what I mean? Like, so whether it's whether it's this year or or next year, you you want to feel like you're closing the gap. You know, your your best players are coming towards the end of you know their kind of peak age window, and um, you know you're signing 33 year old wingbacks, and you know your goalkeeper and club captain is maybe in his last few seasons of his career as a, as a truly elite goalkeeper. And, you know, like the now is the time. And so it's going to be disappointing if it'll be great. If these guys get to lift a trophy, we all want to see Hugo and Kane and son. We want to see him lift a trophy, but if that the trophy is an FA cup or a, a league cup, like I think that feels a little bit like not enough. Yeah, I am. I think I'm with you. Like, on, as an individual season, third in a trophy is the best season we've had in a decade. You know, like great season. But I think when you zoom out and look at the last eight years of this team and like what what we approached in a Champions League final and two legitimate title challenges and you know one of the best players to ever play in the Premier League, um, and Musa Dembele plus Kane and son, you know, like you want to win a big one. And for all, you know, we end Kane's career, not having done that, that will feel not great. Um, so yeah, for this season, I'll be happy with it. But I think right now, as long as it feels like we can go for the title, um, that's, that's what I want. I, I want to dream on a title. I, I get where you're coming from, Ben, but I think, like, if you're sitting there watching this team walk out for the FA Cup final, I think you'll feel a little differently about it. No, no, no. Like, totally. If we win an FA Cup and finish third, this is going to be a great season. I'll be super filled with that. I'm just saying, like, when we come to the end of Kane's time and look back on it, I will feel sad that all we got out of it was a Champions League final and an FA Cup. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. The pressure on. You're right, which is why we need to win the league and cup double this year. You know, that's, that's what right. needs to happen. We need to win a Champions just League saying. and the league. So, like, plenty of good teams and good areas of teams don't win anything. And like, I think that's what's that's, that's what's so tricky about. I feel like where Spurs are, where it's like, and it, you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't feel this way. Where we have really clawed our way to like. I would say just under the sort of elite level of the sport. You know what I mean? Maybe maybe I'm being generous to Spurs there, but like, you know, we're just under that. And what's frustrating is in a way that it isn't for like, you know, Chelsea has a shitty year. Maybe that's going to change without Abramovich, but like Real Madrid has a shitty year, or Chelsea has a shitty year, or um, even Liverpool now. Like, you know, it feels like they're going to be able to like have another whack at it in a year or two. And, you know, it's it's those are teams that, you know, 
it should be evidence that that's not necessarily true. Like Liverpool's in the wilderness for like what six, seven, eight years. You know, United fell off and still haven't gotten back. You know, it's not like it's guaranteed for those teams, but it just it feels so ephemeral for Spurs in a way that you know maybe it's just because we weren't there before, or at least we haven't been there in so long. If you want to like look back to the '60s or the '80s. It just feels like this is our shot. At least, like, while we have Harry Kane, like, this is our time to, like, do something. And I think what's so frustrating is, you know, if you look back at it, Spurs' two, like, legitimate shots at the title, and to a lesser extent our our appearance in the Champions League final, that was, I would say, right before City and Liverpool really established themselves as just you know, the sort of undisputed best teams in the world who are just, like, putting up totals that are impossible to reach. And that's really annoying. That's really frustrating because, you know, if it if if City was just a good team and not this all-conquering monster, you know, you I think we would be talking about Spurs having a title shot with a lot more realism and a lot more... You know, it would be a lot more of an achievable goal, but it really does feel like we need everything to go right for us for that to happen. I think the thing that I would like look at for hope is that, you know, in that sixteen seventeen season where we almost won the title, Liverpool were fourth. The next year they were fourth, and then the season after that they were a point behind Man City and made the Champions League final. You know, like they closed that gap very, very dramatically in a way that I don't think you would have said before that season, like they're, you know, they would have looked at, you know, Spurs and Chelsea and whoever and said, that's, that's probably a bridge too far. And then it wasn't, you know, like this season may not be the season that happens, but like, there's always an opportunity to like make that big jump. And we have the manager to do it. And we have the front three to do it. Um, you know, I think you know we we talked a lot last week about like the kind of flux that Man City and Liverpool are in. Um, they're not the same team necessarily that dominated everything for the last couple seasons. Like, yes, Darwin Nunez won like the XG award in 20 minutes of play because a ball literally got cleared into his shin on the goal line, and then a ball bounced off of his leg five yards out of goal um, for Salah to score, and he walked out and there with a goal and assist, and everyone's singing his praises. But, like, I'm not necessarily convinced that, like, this is a team that is going to be the same kind of all-conquering monster that they were. And Man City have sold off most of their bench for, you know, uh, Jack Grealish, who still hasn't super convinced for Man City yet, and Holland, who had a good debut but is very injury prone like I don't know like it doesn't feel impossible like I'm I mean it's, still... it's one of those things that you look at I don't know it's hard not to think that without with Conte but it also feels ridiculous right like like you have these sort of dueling and like there are two wolves inside all of us and I mean like it's very unlikely that it all happens like surely both of these teams didn't fall off to the extent we need them to and we didn't make the jump that we need us to but like you can see that window it exists we're all thinking about not convinced if you're a spurs fan and this hasn't crossed your mind you're a liar that's the reason i I, like devoted this much of this podcast to it like right i mean look we you know we beat southampton 4-1 it's like oh southampton sucks but like liverpool drew to Fulham, and it's not like Fulham are very good so ben ben you know. Dry pitch. They played in the Sahara Desert. It's like, you know, you can't, you know, Liverpool, Liverpool it's, it, you know, it, you can't blame Liverpool. Yeah. <laughs> For now, I'm choosing to believe when we lose to Chelsea, I'm going to be Ooh. mad again about how the signings weren't enough to, to close that gap. And I still feel like, I still feel like there's enough of a window. I wish we had done more. With our transfers? I think you wish you'd gotten that guy who felt like he either is or could be an elite player. And I think that's the thing that is a little a little frustrating, even if I would struggle to... Like, there's not that guy I feel like we missed out on, but, like, another team got, but I, I wish we found a way, whether it's Bastoni or 
someone I'm not thinking about. You wish you'd added that guy that you feel like is an elite player. I, I, I get that. Right. You know, like, all of our lesser players had very good d- games on opening day. But, like, you know, as much as Ben Davis has been a, a good servant under Conte, you know, you look at what Romero's doing on the other side of the back line, and if you had two of them, you know that would be better. Well, we got Clement Longley coming in, so hopefully, hopefully he's just a victim of the worst-run club in club football. So, yeah. I mean, Paris is just going to chip in with like a good dozen goals and a dozen assists, right, Brian? So there's our there's Definitely. our ninety goals right there. And I mean, uh, Royale on the basis of this is going to, you know, contribute to thirty-eight own goals. <laughs> I don't see how they can't win the league. Yeah, we're there. Yeah, and I mean, we're no penalties. Pace. We're not. We're, we'll probably never get a single penalty. So you know, we're on pace for like 150 goals this season, Brian. So I think what you're yeah, trying to say, Ben, is it is done and dusted. <laughs> book the bus, play in the parade. Uh. I mean, if Liverpool have taught us anything, it's play in the parade anyway, whether <laughs> you win or lose. So absolutely. Might as well. Well, I can't think of a better note to end it on than that. Um, <laughs> follow us at WDR at WDR Podcast. Uh, that is WDR as in Wheel of the Radio. Follow, uh, give us a five star review on iTunes because we deserve it because we're good boys. Ben, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, being much more negative and way less positive about our title chances at Comrade U Spurs. Brian, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Brian underscore Ashlock. That is Brian with a Y. You can find me on Twitter at Skipjack0079. And don't forget to follow Brett Rainbow in your heart. For Ben, for Brian, and of course for Brett Rainbow, I've been your host, Greg. Come on, you Spurs. <laughs>